Welcome to the Well Season Librarian Podcast. My name is Dean Jones. It's Season 8, Episode 22. Today I have the honor of having Terry Barr back on the program. Uh, if you've been following the series, um, Terry was my first ever guest. And I had known him before I started the podcast, so um, I had looked forward to getting a chance to talk to him. And he agreed uh, to be on the podcast, you know, even though I wasn't experienced and was kind of just starting it. And we had a blast talking. I really just love getting a chance to talk to him and probe his mind about his books and food. And it was just a pleasure. And uh, getting a chance to read his books over the last few years has just been a treasure as well. And um, I just love any chance to talk to Terry because he's such an engaging person. And his writing is so fun to read and really makes you feel like you got a slice of Americana in it when you read it. Um, if you haven't read his work, I want to recommend highly that you do. We have links to his website and uh, his latest book, um, American Crisis Playlist 2020-2021, in the bio. Uh, so you want to check that out as well. I'm going to take you to the conversation right away. Don't want to waste any more time. Here you go. Enjoy. Welcome to the Well Season Librarian Podcast. I'm your host, Dean Jones. Today, I'm very blessed to have on the podcast again, Terry Barr, who is our first guest on the Well Season Librarian Podcast. And I'm very happy to have him on again, but honestly, I'm just happy to talk to Terry in any context. Terry Barr's first, first essay collection, The American Crisis Playlist, 2020 to 2021, is available now from Red Hawk Publications. We're going to have links to that in the bio. His essay, Greyhound Seats, One Tell Your Story, 2022 Spring Essay Competition. His work has been nominated for the Pushcart Prize five times, and he writes about music and culture at medium.com. Terry lives in Greenville, South Carolina with his family and is in the final year of teaching at Presbyterian College. Terry, welcome back. Thanks, Dean. It's great to be here. Now, it's, it's, it's been a homecoming for me to have you here. You were my first guest to help me launch the podcast. So thank you for coming back. Oh, it's my pleasure. I appreciate your asking me. Your new book, The American Crisis Playlist, From Political Pestilence to Pandemic, was birthed during the pandemic and the occupation by who I like to call the Commander in Cheeto. This book is about, to me, how music is woven into the very fabric of our lives. Can you talk a little bit about this book and how it came to be? Sure. I, I was doing a weekly playlist series on Medium, and I think I called it something else. I just decided I wanted to go through and figure out the 10 songs that I was listening to that week and kind of rank them and get people to listen to more music. And then as, as 2020 began to really get crazy, and who knows exactly that moment, but I started thinking, we are, of course, in a crisis right now. We are facing a pandemic, but we're also facing, a, to me, a threat on democracy. And are we going to be able to survive it? And I was reading as much as I could on the political atmosphere, and it was just depressing me. And so I noticed that my depression would always get lifted a bit if I started playing more music. And so that's how I kind of got the idea to put the two together, that this is how a person can cope through the times of stress by playing the music that's always comforted him or her, and, and while also being on the lookout for new music. So I started thinking about all the songs that I was loving, and it was fun to just do a top 10 each week, but then it became clear that I should pick out songs that also commented on that week's 
political or viral happenings and how this music music is always underscored and sometimes led us through bad times i mean you can think about the civil rights struggle if you want to you can even think about woody guthrie and more depression era music we've always listened to music to help us cope i mean obviously the the slaves in the south when they worked the fields would sing spirituals and they did this to try to give them some sense of hope or help them endure and so again very humbly i was trying to just to bring something to those who read me on medium and to myself that would give me some way to get through what i wasn't sure any of us would really get through there was um something in the book that i saw more than once that really made me smile because it made me think of the times um i watched saturday night live and i was introduced to musical guests that i'd never seen before and i think that people that if you're young enough that you don't remember you know before the internet where you could just like go onto spotify or whatever and listen to stuff um, at, at your choosing. Back when we didn't have that, it was kind of more rare. So groups like Devo, the B-52s, um, Tom Waits, I was poleaxed by seeing these guests. Um, you talked about that a little bit in your book. Do you want to kind of expound on that? Well, I've always loved that feature of Saturday Night Live, and it's the same thing I've grown to appreciate. I don't watch a lot of late night talk shows, but I will scan to see if Jimmy Kimmel or Colbert are having interesting musical guests. I grew up in an era where I would watch anything from Dean Martin to Glenn Campbell to Johnny Cash to even Hee Haw, mainly to see who the pop and rock and soul performers would be because that was always my passion as a kid, that part of pop culture. And so Saturday Night Live, when I started re-watching it right after um, Hillary Clinton lost the 2016 election, I technically lost it. The band that was on that week was a tribe called Quest, uh, whom I knew but didn't really know too much about. And so they did the song We the People that week. And that was a moment, I think Dave Chappelle was the guest host, like he was this past week. And watching a tribe called Quest and thinking about what they were saying in that song, We the People, was one of those moments where I thought, okay. This is really, really dark, but here's a group that's going to help us look at the darkness and show us that the darkness isn't new. It's been there for many of us, certainly people of color, for as long as America's been here. So let's not give up. This is bleak, but it's not over. I love that. That's very well said. Um, I wanted to ask you if you could read a segment of your book to kind of give an example for the people listening to the podcast uh, what it talks about yeah i'd be glad to so it is organized into 52 units because it lasted for a year there are some interludes and so oftentimes the chapters simply wrote themselves because of what was happening uh yeah. in the country so uh and then in my own personal life but the one i'm going to read is um it's pretty much in the center of the book. I call it the centerpiece, and it's uh, called Playlist Number 30, and it was set on January 10th, 2021, uh, four days, of course, after the, the coup attempt. Um, and so the, the subtitle is Holy F dot dot K, because that's the way I think over and over again that day when I was watching the scenes at the Capitol, 
I think that's all I can say. So that's the piece I'm going to read. So I'll just get right into it. And each piece, of course, comes with 10 songs with a little commentary. So here it is from January 10th, play playlist number 30. I might still be in shock, and it doesn't help that the variant strain of COVID is raging and scientists warn that we'll be blindsided if we don't act. Fortunately, a responsible set of adults will be taking leadership soon. The question is, can we wait for responsible leaders for another 13 days? And during that wait, will the Cretan in charge destroy what's left of us? I have almost laughingly referred to Trump as the orange plague, and plague he is. But let me be even more clear. He should be impeached, arrested, thrown in jail as an insider to riot, as a subverter of the Constitution, as a traitor to our country. This should happen now. While we're at it, the Hawleys and Cruises and Tuppervilles need to be exercised from the Senate. Treason is treason. Tyrants are tyrants. And what we have had for four years is a drift and then a locomotive toward authoritarian dictatorship. Why would anyone, why anyone would invest so much in one mortal man, I'll leave to the historians and theologians. I've never seen nor imagined I would see what transpired at the U.S. Capitol yesterday. Trump is unhinged. He's a psychopath and to believe anything else is to continue believing that the world is flat and that QAnon conspiracists are playing with a full set of brains. I remember this summer seeing the bunker of Q, Trump train and don't tread on me beachcombers set up in a compound near us on Edisto Beach. They drove trucks with Trump banners and were raising children in their mold. They looked normal and very, very white, even in the sun. They aren't normal though. I understand that they believe that they are victims, are aggrieved, and somehow see their world slipping from them. However, I have no sympathy for them, no bond with them, and I do not share, support, condone, nor am willing to tolerate any longer their delusion. That doesn't mean I'm up for physical conflict, but that I'm tired of mincing words. I've written before that I want music to be my saving resolution for this year. Music, sadly, will not save us but maybe it will sustain something of our collective sanity and help our better angels to appear in service. The crisis continues, it worsens, and so here's coping. So, and then the playlist goes quickly like this. Song number one, The Man Who Sold the World from David Bowie on a remastered album, The Man Who Sold the World, which originally appeared in 1970. How on earth can so many believe such a charlatan, such a huckster, such a lying cheat? How has he sold his followers such a distorted, nightmarish vision of us? Why are so many still following him as if he's Jesus or something? And make no mistake, many Christians somehow believe he is. Song number two, Tell Me Lies, The Black Keys from 2019's Let's Rock. Widespread fraud. We won in a landslide. Everybody knows that. The other side knows that. Really? You lost. You keep losing. You keep lying. No punishment is too severe for you. You will, however, go down as the worst president the country has ever seen. No lie. And I'm glad. I hope you know it. And I wonder just what Kellyanne Conway and her alternative facts is feeling now. They're only lies and always have been. Song number three, Burning Down the House, Talking Heads from 1983, Speaking in Tongues. I watched six straight hours of news yesterday. I had intended to answer some mail to dust and vacuum our house, but I was mesmerized by history. At the point I started watching, it was certainly possible that someone was going to torch the Senate chamber or set off a bomb or be caught in a mass gunfire exchange. I couldn't leave my TV and felt like a prisoner of events that both did and did not seem real. The people's house, that's what I kept hearing. 
Those thugs on camera seem like the undead, though, or the guys back when I was in high school who terrorized the corridors of my sight and mind because they hated long hairs and black people and anyone who didn't share their stupid and limited testosterone view of manhood. Song four, Armageddon Time, The Clash, from Black Market Clash, 1979 or so. Remember to kick it over. No one will guide you, not Christmas time, but Armageddon time. A lot of people won't get no supper tonight, no justice tonight. This is when I fell in love with The Clash. It still ranks as one of my three favorite Clash songs, and it's the first song I thought of last night as I watched Washington stumble into darkness. It resonates this morning, too, as I wonder if those who want to just move on, who say nothing to see here, are crawling out from their caves again. Song five, only a pawn in their game, Bob Dylan from 1964's The Times They Are a Changing. 30 years after he shot and killed Medgar Evers, Byron Dale Beckwith still walked the streets of Greenwood, Mississippi, a free man. Imagine that in America. A member of my institution just wrote that he believes Antifa infiltrated the peaceful mob yesterday. So, of course, blame yesterday on Black people. White people can't be wrong or misguided or lying killers, right? Until we confront racism and our legacy of coddling racists, right here is where we'll rot. Song six, The Silver Tongue Devil and I, Chris Christopherson from The Silver Tongue Devil and I, 1971. Except Trump isn't exactly silver tongued. He uses words like tremendous and sad over and over. You know, empty words from an equally empty head. I mean, the guy has a vocabulary of about 30 words anyway, but maybe that's America right now. Sound bites, clips. I think I heard Josh Hawley use the made-up word irregardless last night. Not a word, Mr. Stanford and Yale graduate, but don't let inaccuracy stop you. Seven, what's going on? Marvin Gaye from 1971's What's Going On. Oh, Marvin, what is going on right now? I have such high hopes for this year, despite the plagues and chaos. Am I crazy? Have I been smoking again? Do I remember a time when AM radio was a sanctuary for the music of my life? Do I want to go back, way back in time? Is reading the news healthy anymore? Song eight, Love Train, the OJs from 1972's Backstabbers. I could have used the title song because after all, Brutus, no one knows how it feels to have your country insurrected like we do right now. Do I call my Trump friends and ask them, how does it feel to be a complete unknown? Anyway, my daughter played the song as we counted down the new year last week. She's only 26. This song predated her by 22 years, and yet she had it hot on her playlist, so now I have it on mine. Song number nine, Tub Thumping, Chumbawamba from 1997's Tub Thumper. She also played this one, remembering it from her childhood. Don't you love that? My daughter remembers my playing Tub Thumping as part of her childhood nostalgia. <laughs> Hell yeah. We get knocked down, but we'll get up again. They're never going to keep us down. Democracy does not include authoritarian dictators. Donald, please leave. 10. Keep on rocking in the free world. Neil Young from 1989's Freedom. This one seemed an easy choice back when some feared Jesse Jackson. Imagine. Everyone says they want freedom, but clearly what we mean by it isn't the same. What will our world look like next week or even tomorrow or January 20th? I still have faith somehow that my psyche feels beaten up right now. Harry, I want to thank you for that. I'm a huge fan of your work, and I, I really love revisiting your stories. So many of your stories have stuck into my mind. I have to remind myself that they're not my memories or my, me memory, my memories of reading your work. 
You have one uh, story particularly that I love where it's about a late night drive with friends and uh, that's just stuck in my mind so much. And I, I find myself nodding along with you when you're reading and when just now, and then when I read your work, I kind of like, I'm shaking my head in agreement with a lot of the stuff you say. Where did writing start for you? When did you kind of feel like you the urge to write? Oh man, that's a great question. Back in back in high school, I had a teacher who gave us the opportunity to write every day in our English class. So I know that at that moment, I realized that writing was something more than just a little, whatever little compositions I had done. So that was an early seed. And I would go home every day and just write in my journal. And it would, it would maybe it was meaningless. Maybe it was about the girl I had a crush on or whatever the case may be. But when I got into grad school, I joined a writing group for a time and it was so affirming. And I remember writing a story and getting such good feedback. And I still didn't believe I was a good writer, but I should have just listened a little bit harder. And then when I got this job somewhere in the 90s, while I was still trying to produce academic essays, at some point, I decided to write about the experience of growing up in the South as in a mixed Jewish Christian home, but not knowing enough about the Jewish side. And so I just started writing about what it felt like to be caught somewhere in the middle of the world. And I realized that I really love to write. And so that pushed me into another, another zone that I never really got out of, even though I did until maybe 2008 before I really took writing seriously enough to pursue it as something that I could actually have a collection of essays on or could do a regular blog on or um, I still saw writing up until then as something I would do in my spare time as opposed to making it a regular part of my routine in my life. You were an English professor at Presbyterian College. So was this a career choice for you? Did you kind of just, were you driven to do this or how did this come up about for you as far as a career choice goes? Oh, uh, so... I didn't know that I was going to do this even towards the end of my college career. Um, one afternoon I was at home just thinking about, well, what do you want to do? Do you want to go to journalism school or do you want to go to law school or anything like that? And I just sat there thinking, what is it that I love to do? And what I love to do was to get in my English classes and talk about literature and then I thought, well, that's that's just it. You want to be a professor. And it was it was just an afternoon like this. I was by myself. And it was such a it was the clearest revelation, short of <clears throat> realizing that I wanted to marry my wife, uh, that I think I've ever had. And I, I of course didn't know how good I would be, but I knew at that point I would apply to grad school and give it a shot to see if that really would last. And it did. And here I am at the my last year of teaching. Uh, it's been counting being a TA. It's been really forty years I've been doing this. So, it's it's just what my passion has been. Yeah. Is there any advice that you give to your students year in year out that's kind of stuck with you through the years? Mm -hmm. 
Um, it depends on the student. If they're writing students, um, it might be a certain kind of advice, which is to keep trying to publish, keep sending things out, go to get an MFA if you want to. Um, if it's the straight literature students, it, it more is uh, if you truly have the passion to do it and can jump through the hoop the hurdles and the hoops of, of grad school programs, by all means do that. Uh, but I, I don't encourage many of those unless I can see clearly that they um, know what they're looking at clearly, that it's not it's a lot of competition to get a job in academia. And depending on where you are, it probably isn't gonna pay what you think it's gonna pay either. So. But you know, it's easy to see those students who just have a passion for literature and understand it. And for those are the students who I do encourage to go on because despite everything else, we still need good literature professors. We need people who are in the humanities who help people see that humanities is worth pursuing and worth encouraging and that we aren't just a society locked in a business model or in a science model, that there are other forms of creative endeavor that that just like I'm doing, that help sustain you in critical moments. This episode is sponsored by Culinary Historians of Northern California, a Bay Area educational group dedicated to the study of food, drink, and culture in human history. To learn more about this organization and their work, please visit their website at www.chnorcal.org. Um, in 2017, Don't Date Baptist and Other Warnings from My Alabama Mother came out. What was your uh, inspiration for writing it? And how did you kind of collect the uh, essays in this uh, book? I wanted to write about what it felt like to grow up in a relatively small town in, in, a, in a place that gets maligned and sometimes deservedly so, Alabama, the South, um, I wanted to, I'd had a lot of models about writing what one's experiences are growing up in a world that seems very quaint and safe on the one hand, but also pretty dark on the other. And so I thought I had stories to say. I thought it was really interesting that in such a place, uh, a woman mother who was married to a Jewish man would make a statement like, whatever you do, you know, marry anyone you want to, but don't date a Baptist. And I just thought that's just such a great story to try to figure out. So it was more, it was about my family, it was about identity. And so I just kept building essays that were about the strange occurrences that happened in this little town that I thought people would recognize in themselves that, yeah, I grew up in whatever strange environment too. And isn't it, isn't a fundamental thing to write about those experiences that shape us that make us into who we are and i do really think that we sometimes define ourselves by the stories that we're told i just read this great book called diary of a misfit by casey parks and she says towards the end of it in the person that she's trying to write about uh she realizes that maybe she didn't 
get the story right, or maybe the story she was told about this person wasn't right. But she said, it's because of that story, whether it's true or not, that I wanted to pursue what I did. And so our stories, the stories we hear, they don't have to be true because they're nevertheless going to affect us and shape us. And so I did try to figure out how true these stories were, but then I realized it doesn't matter if they were true or not. They were the stories I heard. So how do I write about them? And isn't it fun to write about them? And wouldn't it be fun to share them with other people? Your next book, The Secrets I'm Dying to Tell You, came out in 2020, and this came out at the beginning of the pandemic. How did this affect the release of the book and, and how you're able to kind of uh, distribute it and, and talk about it with others? Well, I mean, the practical way it affected things is what can do any live readings. And so fortunately, just like doing today, I was able to do a Zoom reading, several actually sponsored some by bookstores and others just by my setting up a particular reading to get people involved. Um, I had held on, I tried to wait to release it, but who knew at that point when the pandemic was going to end. And so then I thought, well, maybe the best time to release it is now because we can still gather somehow through Zoom and maybe uh, reading some of these stories. They were, they're pretty dark. They're stories about the Me Too movement. They're stories about other deep secrets of some of my friends that really just devastated us all. I mean, there's stories, sadly, about people who were molested and raped. And so, again, it's that darker side to growing up in this place where these things weren't supposed to happen. And if they did happen, they got covered up. And it's an answer to all those people who would say, well, if you something bad happened to you 10 years ago, why are you waiting to now to talk about it? And my answer is, well, how do you know what trauma this person went through and what it would take to actually talk about it? These are sometimes things we're even afraid to tell our therapist. And so I wanted to bring to light all these people who sat on stories for so long because they didn't feel like they'd be believed because they were women or they were you know, someone else, a kid. And we're always so ready to disbelieve the things that challenge our worlds. So again, maybe. I thought at a time where we're going through a, a crisis, unlike one we've seen for decades, maybe this is a time to start sharing these darker stories so that we see that uh, this isn't the only crisis time we've ever gone through. And my mother had just died and I could tell some of the stories because I wouldn't have told some of these stories about her had she still been alive. So there was that too. Your next book that came out at the same time was We Might As Well Eat, How to Survive Tornadoes, Alabama Football, and Your Southern Family. And this kind of came out at the same time period. But this was a little bit different than the other book. And I would say that there is a real market difference between all the books you've done. Do you want to talk about this book a little bit and what kind of inspired you to write this? Well, you know this, and we've talked about this before, that Food is so vital to our sustenance, our lives. But in the South, and particularly in my family, food was not just something that you ate to sustain yourself. It became something aesthetic. And so the way food is prepared, the way it's presented. And so I kind of wedded these ideas of Southern family, of cooking, and that other thing, Alabama football, 
it could have been Auburn football if I've been raised in a different family, but all that just kind of saturated my world. And this culminated in um, that title, We Might As Well Eat, which is something that my mother said when I was at home visiting in April of uh, whatever year that would have been, 20, 2016, I think. No, it had been earlier than that. Anyway, a, a massive tornado came through the area. It came through Tuscaloosa first, and we should have left. We should have gone somewhere, but we stayed. My mother didn't want to leave her house, and the tornado came within about uh, two miles. And so we got all the effect, but we fortunately survived. But in the moment where the power came back on for a few minutes that evening, and we were listening to the radio, we were listening to the Paul Feinbaum football show. Um, he announced that if you if you can hear him, you're probably okay. And so I had some relief and that was my relief. My mother immediately jumped up and said, well, power's back on. I'm gonna go get us something for supper. We might as well eat. Uh, so I thought, isn't that funny that in the midst of this, she's still worried about it's supper time, we gotta have food on the table. And so I thought, again, this is a story worth writing. And I built all the other stories around either some aspect of food or the family or football. Now, this I didn't put this question out, but I was thinking this as you were talking. And like when I read your work, it kind of occurred to me as well. So when many writers, both fiction and nonfiction, write about places, sometimes they I feel like they get it. Sometimes they don't. When Stephen King writes about Maine and, and like the East Coast, I really feel like I'm I'm feeling it in his writing. When you write about the South, I really feel like it. Now I've visited the South and I've been through there as a tourist or somebody who was working through there for whatever reason. And and I I, I remember it and I feel like I was there, but I don't feel like I was there in the same context was when I lived in Texas for a few years and I had friends that were Texans who would interpret and explain things to me. And I feel oftentimes you're explaining the South to the reader. To the reader, um, is that in kind of intentional when you write? Like, are you kind of like um, describing basically what it is to live in the South and 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 what it is really truly like? I think I am. I don't always go into it consciously to do that, but I know in the back of my mind I want to tell you this story so that you'll understand something. And I'm one of these people, like most Southerners, who. I think I can see pretty clearly here are some of the real problems here are some of the again darkness, but it isn't just that there are also things that I just recognize in the secrets book, one of my favorite essays is called going up the country. Uh, based on that can heat song from the 60s, but it's a journey that my brother and I with two friends of ours, one of my oldest friends and his husband took uh, just a few days after my mother died and they came back to help me grieve, um, help my brother and I grieve. And they wanted to go up to Bibb County to see where the podcast S-Town was set. And we knew that area pretty well. And so we took this road trip. And what, what we saw on that road trip from the auto parts junkyards that were every mile or so to, you know, weird places out in the middle of nowhere with Confederate flags, to three old men sitting on their front porch without shirts on waving at us you know this all just felt like the south it was a late july day it was hot we got so far in the woods the gps wasn't working 
And we never really found the S-Town part, but that was just an excuse to take a road trip. That was just an excuse to see the, the terrain that we all knew really well. And that just made us feel both that haunting sense of this is a region that is really difficult to explain and tame, but it's also a texture like I felt the first time I read Faulkner uh, and knew that Missis the terrain of Mississippi and the terrain of Alabama were very similar. And here's someone who's going to tell me very deeply about myself. And so that's the sense that I really have when I'm writing. I want to tell you deeply about myself as well as myself. And the way I do that is by just getting you to feel what I'm feeling so that we all recognize each other, even if we're strangers. Was the lockdown a help to you in writing or was it a hindrance? How did it affect your writing? Well, I'm one of these people who didn't mind the lockdown in a certain way. When I figured out that I could still get coffee and toilet paper like everyone else and what their essentials and that I was there with my wife and my dog and my wife would assure me everything is going to be okay. Uh, I actually like being at home. I, I, I don't really need to go many places. And so I wasn't devastated in the I was devastated in an existential sense, sure, because who knew how long it was going to last. But in a personal day-to-day -day way, I could still teach from home and I could still write. And so, yeah, it made me double down on the writing for sure, because I don't get bored easily. I know that I can fill my time, but writing, again, it just became another way that here you can, you have it now, the built-in excuse. You can't go anywhere, so write and I use that time to to work on writing of many sorts. Um, yeah, so I'm sure that it helped. And like other people, I was happy to go out to a restaurant again when that time came through. But oh yeah, I, yeah. But I <laughs> uh, I think I think I'm a person who was built for something like this to not completely disrupt his whole psyche. Now I've um been had the honor of uh, being at one of your book readings online on zoom and zoom kind of changed the it kind of upset the apple cart in many ways because it changed the way we do a lot of things for good or bad on a permanent basis i feel uh, i do because i do a lot of programming on zoom now for libraries which never would have happened before and I, the really cool thing was being at your reading it was kind of like being at um a rock concert i remember i saw patty smith once and it was kind of that kind of electricity in the air how has the whole marketing during the pandemic changed everything moving forward for you? Well, it, it, there are those positives that all it's sometimes hard to realize. All you really have to do if you want to have a book reading and you've got a Zoom account and a lot of friends is just to figure out a time to do it and send out an invitation. And so you don't have to worry about refreshments and you don't have to worry about the logistics. And so as much as I love live person events, I do appreciate what Zoom is doing for us and that it does bring us together. So that event that you're talking about was so special to me because I had people from all over the country, you and many of my other medium friends. I had people who were former professors from college and grad school. I had my old childhood friends, some who are still in the Bessemer, Birmingham area, some who are in New York and, and New Orleans and other great places. And when I looked out because of that and just saw this wall of faces, 
uh, it was it was really overwhelming. So it was kind of like in that small way being uh, at a rock show where people are all coming together and just to be there for this particular moment. So that's to me, I had more people on the Zoom show than I've ever had, I think, show up at just a bookstore book reading. So and then I got to be in my own home and sitting in my own chair and my dog was right by me and my wife was over here. And my kids were actually one of them in, in the background. So, you know, it, it just felt like I didn't have to leave home and I could end the meeting when I wanted to. Yeah, that was really a wonderful, that was, I feel really blessed to have been in there on that audience. That was really nice. Um, so I want to ask you now, um, what are you listening to right now that makes you happy? Well, as we were kind of chatting before uh, the event started, I've been doing crate dives for old country music. Uh, so I have discovered the joys of, of course, I already knew the joys of listening to Loretta Lynn, but I've enjoyed, really enjoyed listening to old Tammy Wynette records, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, who also just passed. Hank Snow and all these kind of people. But last week I started, uh, I got the new Taylor Swift record. A lot of my students and my daughters love her and I, I, I like her very much too. And so I got that and listened to it and it was really very soothing and just very pleasant to listen to. And um, I worked the polls last week and I remember the night before I worked the polls and, or maybe the night after, I went to one of my other go-tos, which is Casey Musgraves, because nothing nothing says the South to me in these days quite like Casey Musgraves and her beautiful voice and the way she's so funny to point out some of the things in our world that um, make me smile and cringe at the same time. So uh, I'm still listening to a lot of them. And my brother was here last week and we also started diving back into old Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass. And so, nice. yeah, if you go to your record store and look at vinyl and the used bins, you can probably score the whole Herb Alpert collection because I have, <laughs> and you can get it for a dollar and $2. No one, I think, but me and my brother, and maybe you wants this music and it's still just beautiful. It was, it was my, I told my brother, I told my wife that when I was a kid, my dad and mom would buy Herb Alpert records. They even saw him live one time. And that was the one band that all four of us could agree on that we, that we loved. So isn't that something? I'll probably talk about that soon. I've always joked with people that if you go to any California garage sale, there's going to be two sure items there. One is a copy of Mario Puzo's The Godfather in paperback, and the other will be Whipped Cream and Other Delights by Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass Band. You know, I just ordered that. That's not one that I've had, but I ordered a new vinyl copy from Amazon, and it ought to be getting to my house today. I actually I own that. Well, I, I, I'm proud of you for owning it, and I can't wait that I'm about to own it, too. It's a uh, it's a treasured possession along with my Alan Sherman uh, album uh, from Camp Hella Mudda Hella Mudda from Camp Granada. So yeah, I mean this is really fun stuff to go back and look at. And when, again, when you go to record stores, it's just all over the place. That I I've I've really been enjoying the experience of buying records for a dollar and two dollars that are still in decent shape. Sometimes, if you're lucky, they've never even been opened. They're just kind of sitting there. Uh, they've bought. 
estate records and you can just that's just such a fun experience i'd love to have you over and we could uh, bust out some of the uh, old comedy albums i got the uh uh mike nichols and elaine may and uh that'd stuff be like that stan freeberg all that kind of stuff oh yeah that that'd be excellent yeah so that's you know one of the columns or one of the regular series i'm doing on the riff right now is the crate diving uh series where almost every week i talk about things that i've just found in used record stores to try to get people to go back and see that this the music is out there and you don't have to spend a whole lot of money to to actually own it and if you've got a turntable oftentimes they're still in decent shape if you're just careful and uh it's i don't know i just feel like my life has been enriched again by doing this so i, I try to keep that column uh almost weekly at this point so a plug for the riff again to go back and read about music now speaking about that i i'm I met you through Medium and a lot of other authors we both know, and I really have loved the punk rock nature of the Medium, how for good or bad, all kinds of writers are on there and you could read all kinds of people you might not have been able to read otherwise. What has the Medium been like? What has it meant for your life as a writer? It's it's really, really been the foremost thing that's made writing fun. Um, I can I do a lot of other kinds of long form writing, but when I'd submit those pieces to literary journals. It's it's almost as if it's the black hole. Six months, eight months go by, you don't hear from anybody uh, to know whether that piece will be accepted. And publications on Medium, of course, are so immediate. And you generate readership, you, you get comments from your pieces, you even get a little money, uh, not a lot, but you get some money depending on who you are. But it's so engaging, and that to me is the key. You know, there's this core readership through uh, the food sites that we've written for, through the music sites, and some of the others where uh, this group is always reading each other's work, challenging each other to write other things. We've got a Rate a Record series that's come through uh, Pierce McIntyre's Plethora of Pop, where it's kind of taking that old American bandstand model and picking out two songs and and rating them from 35 to 98 and it's just exploded and it's a lot of fun but a way to keep ourselves engaged with each other and with the music that we love so i don't know what i would have done if medium hadn't existed to do this and yeah you can blog on other sites whatever but this has been such a really engaged community that um even as tired as i am from my work in in academia uh, I really look forward to writing that next medium piece so I can get a reaction from you or from people like Chris Zappa and Paul Combs and all these other great writers. So Terry, what's next for you? Well, so I do have other essays that I'll be collecting at some point, um, but my next big project, I think, is uh, to go back to the football thing. I started thinking that there ought to be a good book out there on underrated college football rivalry games. So we all know what the big rivalry games are, mm -hmm. Alabama, Auburn, Michigan, and Ohio State and so forth. But does anyone know that there's a big rivalry between um, Middle Tennessee and Western Kentucky? And they call that rivalry the 100 miles of hate. And so <laughs> I, I'm thinking that I'm going to try to come up with 12 
underrated rivalries and go to the games and tailgate with people, talk to the institutions, how did this rivalry start, you know, do kind of that historical background, but then enjoy the passion of college football in, in forms that most people don't really know about. So I think that's going to be the next project. I'm hoping I can do it with my family and do some traveling and, and go to go to places that, you know, I wouldn't ordinarily go to. That sounds wonderful. Terry, I want to thank you for being on the podcast. I'm glad to get to have you back again. I hope that we have an excuse to have you on again soon. Well, I hope so, too. I always enjoy it, Dean. Thank you. That was my conversation with author Terry Barr. His book, The American Crisis Playlist, 2020-2021, is available through the link in the bio. Next week, we're going to be talking with James Bartlett, who is the author of books Gourmet Ghosts 1 and 2. Number 2 is the re most recent volume. These books detail um, a tour through Los Angeles's restaurants, bars, and hotels, and some of the murders and famous goings-on that happened there also uh, dealing with the paranormal as well. Check that out next week, my interview with author James Bartlett. I hope you all have a really wonderful week, and you all have a great time cooking up a lot of wonderful things until I talk to you then. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.